This is the Ad Nontech Podcast, conversations about education, technology, and culture, with Dr. Doug Reed and Dr. Matt Stranick. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dr. Doug Reed, and I am located on Abigue, the traditional and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. My name is Dr. Matthew Stranick, and I am located in Manaquisk in St. John, New Brunswick, which is situated on the traditional and unceded territory of the Wulastukyuk Maliseet people. This is what Camtasia is for. You just trim the first five seconds. <clears throat> so, <laughs> uh, so hi everybody. Welcome to episode forty-seven of the Ed Nontech podcast. Uh, this is kind of a, a first, if you will, uh, a historical moment, if you will. Uh, hence my AI-generated historical background, which uh, I can get into. This is what this is. This is what AI, Bing AI, thinks that Seoul, South Korea looked like in 1907. I don't know about these uh, kind of tower structures back here, but uh, anyway, playing history games with AI. So for its historical uh, episode, in as much as this is our first sort of, uh, I don't know if interview is the right word or if this is more of a panel, um, but uh, joined here as ever, uh, Dr. Uh, Doug Reed. Uh, and uh, the, I guess, newly minted uh, Dr. Lee Smith. And I thought uh, really uh, as soon as I sort of saw, you know, Lee kind of reached out to me through Facebook uh, just to kind of indicate that he was uh, finishing up his uh, program study, that he had successfully defended his thesis. Um, and I sort of uh, conferred with Doug about it just to see if perhaps uh, having an interview sort of format might be something we could uh, try since uh, we are we are in year one and a half of this uh, endeavor, right? So honestly, that's more or less the thought. Uh, we've got some uh, sort of uh, Google notes here, uh, which I've got popped open in a browser tab. And then I also have uh, your thesis, Lee, which you sent to me just also popped in a browser tab. So we can refer to that as we go. Uh, but I guess uh, just to start with, um, how are you guys doing? Uh, Doug, how's how's life these days? I just I, finished the uh, toughest month of the year for my job, so I'm looking forward to taking a couple of breaths. Fantastic. Good stuff. And um, Lee, you are in uh, you, you're in uh, Vietnam right now, right? Uh, you've been here, you've been there. Um, why, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about where you are and uh, how you're doing in the first place? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm in Hanoi, Vietnam, and uh, normally a very beautiful tropical place with its own kind of gritty charm. Uh, not so tropical today. We're in a little bit of a of a rainy, dreary patch, but uh, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful country. It's a city we love. 
Uh, we've been here for two and a half years now. Um, my wife, Deanna, who Matt, of course, knows well from working with her in Seoul. Uh, Deanna and I moved here because she got a job as the middle school, high school librarian at the United Nations International School here. And um, it's a really great job and she's got incredible colleagues and um, yeah, we love it here. It's, it's, um, it's going to be home for at least a few more years. So, yeah. Awesome. That's really fantastic. Um, and again, I guess just to kind of preface the whole background, um, which will surely, you know, uh, appear within the notes, but just uh, for those uh, just kind of checking in for the first time, um, I would, it goes back uh, to uh, 2000 and uh, you, you got to Mr. Jew's school, Heritage Institute of Language Arts, uh, back in uh, 2000, was it 2006 or 2007 you guys arrived? Six, yeah. 2006, that's right. Okay, and I was, I was, I was pretty sure you were there, like we were there during the summer of 06, right? That's when we had our, we, we, we got campy, we were, teaching at a, a hogwan okay so for those who don't know we are going into we this uh sort of acquaintanceship between uh lee and uh deanna and myself um you know when lee and deanna arrived at uh, heritage institute um i was about five months or four months into being a teacher they got hired just a few months after i did um and there's a high turnover at these kind of places basically um for those who don't know about how it goes uh, Hogwan is like a private language institute, typically for kids, uh, elementary, middle school, and high school age. And uh, these kids, uh, while we were there, I mean, they just they would go to the Hogwan, you know, to the to the to the English lesson two or three evenings a week, and then the other evenings would be like archery or I don't know, like high end sports or uh, you know, more tutoring of various kinds. Um, it seems like those kids really were being worked very hard, both in school and out, because that was kind of the nature of the deal. Uh, teaching was completely new to me. I am safe to say I was a bit uh, terrified, a bit, uh, you know, hesitant in what I was doing. And so just uh, having some uh, experienced educators like Lee and Deanna arriving, who uh, you'd been uh, an educator for about 10 years or so at that point, had you not? Yeah, that's right. We left Canada in 96. And uh, I mean, for most of the time, we've been away. We've had a few spots back in Canada here and there a year or two. Uh, but for most of the time, we've been out. So yeah, we were, this was kind of beginning of year 11 for us. So yeah. So there we go. And uh, for me, you know, just somebody who's kind of just coming into the education endeavor for the first time, um, I just really appreciated having experienced professional colleagues who I could bounce stuff off of and, uh, you know, actually sort of develop. Um, and for me, that ended after, you know, just about a year, a little bit more than a year uh, going into the B.Ed. program and, uh, you know, subsequently from there. But uh, when people are cool to you, I think it's just important to kind of remain in touch. Um, and so due to the uh, zucker suck machine uh, that we all kind of participate in. Um, that's that's one benefit of it. And I just count myself really lucky to still be in this career, um, you know, these many years later. And it's just been really cool watching uh, Lee kind of step into the doctoral realm uh, and kind of uh, putting it out there. So 
that's kind of the uh, long preamble. Doug, was there anything you wanted to kind of join in there with, Bud? Because you've done the overseas teaching thing a bit yourself, and you've been kind of uh, doing the teaching gig for quite a while. So anything that's jumping out at you here, Bud? Not really, no. I'm just interested to see what we can learn. Well, absolutely. So that being said, um, I got to say, Lee, uh, that I was really compelled by the title that you came up with for your uh, research, uh, Tears at the Heart of Things, Moral Distress mm -hmm. Among Principles of Canadian Accredited Schools in China. Um, I think that's just incredibly uh, evocative and uh, incredibly compelling in terms of, you know, it makes me uh, interested. So uh, to put uh, maybe the most obvious kind of question, um, what was it about that uh, particular topic and uh, what kind of put you on the path towards the doctorate even, if we want to even just sort of step that far back? Sure. Uh, I'll answer the question about the title first. And uh, the, the very short preamble to that is I've long loved reading the classics. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I had the good fortune of going to a to a high school where I took Latin for three years and I took Latin in university. And um, and so I've read some of these things in their original, you know, translated as, as you're learning a new a new language, Latin. Um, anyway, so that's my preamble for this. So actually this phrase, Tears at the Heart of Things, uh, this particular iteration of it, uh, comes from Seamus Haney's translation of Virgil's poem, The Aeneid. And it's a breathtaking translation. Uh, the classics can be dry. This is anything but. Uh, small digression, if you get a chance to read anything by Madeline Miller, who I'm convinced is one of the greatest living authors, uh, she kind of reimagines classic texts uh, from the point of view of a different character, not the main character. So there's that. Anyway, plug for Madeline Miller, who who I would happily read every word, or have read every word of, but uh, uh, just incredible stuff. So uh, Tears at the Heart of Things, though, comes from Seamus Haney's translation of the Aeneid. And um, uh, in that poem, Aeneas, the, the poem's protagonist, the epic poem's protagonist, he is moved to tears when he gazes upon a mural in a temple um, of scenes from the Trojan War, the war that had driven him from Troy, uh, his homeland. So he was currently in exile, but he was uh, gazing upon this temple and looking at these murals, these friezes in this temple, uh, he saw people that he had actually known depicted in battles. And he came to an understanding that their sense of duty and obligation had cost many of them quite literally uh, their humanity, their lives, but uh, the essence of who they were. So this uh, Tears at the Heart of Things uh, is a translation of uh, Sunt Lacrimae Rerum, There Are Tears at the Heart of Things. And it's not a it's not a cry of resignation or defeat. Um, it's the moment that Aeneas recognizes that there's this kind of beautiful complexity of the human condition. There's always going to be strife and sadness. Uh, I think those are inevitable. He thought those were inevitable. But from within those moments come an understanding of self and of the world. And uh, so, to, you know, to, to become aware was to become realized, to see things as they are, to see the world as it is. And, and there's 
safety and compassion and grace in that understanding. So when I was looking for a title, uh, thinking of a title, this notion of moral distress is something that really gets at the heart of things. And so, I mean, I remember this phrase from, from reading this poem in Latin 30 years ago. And uh, yeah, that's the long answer to, uh, to the title. That is so rad. Um, I just, uh, again, for those who are just uh, encountering Dr. Smith for the first time, um, you have just experienced uh, what I've known for the length of our uh, acquaintanceship is that uh, he's a uh, legit bibliophile, a lover of books, uh, much even more so than me. Uh, and I kind of put myself, you know, I, I did the English major and, uh, and all that, and I still kind of envision myself as, you know, being a reader and lover of literature and, uh, you know, a bit of a writer, hobbyist guy. And uh, just the fact that you are reaching all the way back with something so uh, specific and vital from uh, that uh, history, uh, your personal history and uh, within that literary paradigm is just uh, really, um, it's awesome is what I think. So uh, that's rad. Um, Doug, anything uh, jumping out at you here with that or? I'm just wondering how you decided to do this particular piece of research. The title made a lot of sense to me, but I'm just, wondering how that's yeah. where you ended up how you ended up doing that yeah so uh there is a personal rationale and um and that is um you know i spent a number of years after we worked in korea with with matt uh diana and i we moved back to china and um you know by training i'm a i'm a teacher of of literature and poetry um but i did kind of joined the administrative dark side and I became a, a curriculum coordinator and then a vice principal and then a principal. And um, we were working in Canadian accredited schools in China. So actually British Columbia schools. So uh, these schools operate exactly as schools in Vancouver or Victoria do. All the compliance and regulatory pieces are the same. The curriculum's the same. The uh, teachers must be accredited the same, content is the same, da, da, da. it's just that they happen to be outside of Canada. So uh, I became the principal of a, of a large, um, at the time I think it was the second largest of these BC offshore schools, at the time there were 45 of them, and uh, we had about 800 kids, just over 800 kids, 55 teachers uh, in the grade, this grade 10 to 12 BC program. And I just have so much, uh, I mean, it's so admirable <laughs> to me uh, what these students do. They, you know, they're studying high school, which is a difficult time for teenagers anyway, in their second or third language, in a kind of a context, a system that they're unfamiliar with, because it's very different than what they've come up through in their Chinese middle schools. Anyway, so they come to this program and um, it's a Canadian program in the middle of China. And uh, I, I recount this in, in, the, in the dissertation. And, um, but uh, I, I had the good fortune one day in, uh, in the spring to uh, be escorted <laughs> from my office by some, by some members of China's uh, Public Security Bureau. They came in oh. and they just took me out of my office and they took me to a building about an hour away 
from my office and there was not any talking going on in the car. It was very quiet, two very polite uh, men, middle-aged men uh, wearing standard Chinese <laughs> nondescript suits. They took me to this, uh, they didn't identify who they were, but it was very clear. And the secretary said, you need to go uh, with them. So um, off I went and uh, they took me to this building, put me in a conference room. And over the course of a day, they impressed upon me that uh, I, I had a choice to make. And the choice was we could remove this textbook that we were using and had been using for a number of years, a required textbook in a required course for graduation in the BC uh, to get a BC diploma. Um, there were three pictures in there that somebody now had tweaked on that uh, they felt uh, were problematic for Chinese harmony security. And so my choice was I could order those textbooks removed or uh, I would be removed. Uh, so I would be, uh, I'd lose my job, I'd lose my visa, so I couldn't work there anymore. But also the school would be um, shuttered. Uh, the school would lose its license to operate. And so, I mean, this is, these are high stakes. These are 800 kids and their families and 55 teachers and their livelihoods. And I'm balancing that with, with my own very deeply held principles about and, and notions about um, freedom of expression and freedom to dissent and freedom to discover information and and all of these things. Uh, so I was given a choice. Ultimately, I felt it was not a choice at all. So I acquiesced and I went back to school and we removed. I went into every grade 11 social studies classroom. We had 12 different sections at the time. Went to every section and stood in front of the classrooms and said, uh, I'll be removing these textbooks. And uh, it didn't sit well with me. And I didn't know the phrase moral distress at the time. And as I was processing it over a number of years, I knew I was frustrated. I knew I was angry about it. I knew that I, I settled on the term for myself, ethical consternation. I knew I, there was consternation involved. I knew it was about my sense of right and wrong. I knew it was about ethics, um, but I also knew I had no choice. And so, when I got to the University of Alberta in 2019 um, to, to start my doctorate, I, I hit the supervisor lottery for one thing. Uh, my supervisor was incredible. And she had the previous year, she had uh, been commissioned by the Alberta Teachers Association. And uh, she had introduced into education, taking it from healthcare, this notion of moral distress. And moral distress is a well-known concept in, in healthcare, in healthcare professionals. It's, it's been known and studied for 40 years. Uh, but until Dr. Stelmack brought it very peripherally, I mean, she mentioned it in, in this ATA report she put together um, as its first introduction into the lexicon in education. And then because of my work through her, she was my supervisor. I came to know the work. I started to do my own, uh, put together my own literature review and knew that this was what I felt. What was interesting back in 2014, 
when it was happening was all of the my colleagues, my my peers, I guess not my colleagues, my peers, the principals of all the other offshore schools had all received the same mandate roughly at the same time, remove that book uh, from their different local education authorities. And, you know, we're all in a chat group or in an email group together. And um, some of them were angry and outraged. And some of them, it was just, uh, it's, it's just another day of doing what we do where we do it. And I believed and still believe to this day that those people were incredibly principled educators, strong school leaders. I had worked with a lot of them in the different conferences and workshops and knew them well and believed them to be running their schools the way that they should be run according to what BC would have us, how BC would have us run our schools. But their their reactions, frankly, some of them, their indifference or their kind of insouciance sometimes, they're like, throwing up their hands. Um, it, it made me wonder why I was reacting the way I was and the way that they were. And so that was the impetus for this doctoral study. I wanted to understand how people made sense of morally distressing situations um, because none of us clearly were doing it in the same way. Uh, I knew how I was like I literally lost sleep, oh, you know, this phrase, we lose sleep on things. I, I literally lost sleep. I was, uh, it affected my relationships with the Chinese, with the host school administrators, because I felt um, not supported there. They of course couldn't offer support because they were following a line that they had no choice but to follow either, regardless of what their personal feelings were. It wasn't even appropriate for me to ask them their personal feelings because it wouldn't have mattered. That's not how it works. It's not how it tends to work in China. So, um, yeah, that's the that's the sorry the long winded version of how how I got to this notion of moral distress. Right on. Thank you for that. Thanks. I don't want to say that's fantastic because it sounds like you uh, arrived at that through a great deal of uh, personal turmoil. And uh, Doug and other people who are listening, I mean. Just to kind of frame this, uh, Lee is the kind of dude who has done like ultra marathon running events. I think it's safe to say. Mm -hmm. So this is a dude who like goes on four day, multiple hundred K runs uh, for enjoyment, I guess. And <laughs> you're talking about somebody who is also a licensed tattoo artist. Okay, who became licensed as a tattoo artist in Asia and practiced as a licensed tattoo artist in Asia while working as a teacher. So, I mean, I'm not saying this to just kind of throw out some interesting trivia, although I think it, it's interesting as hell. Um, what I'm going to say is like for a person such as this to have such conundrums, I mean, I think I would personally be, uh, you know, throwing up in my uh, throat a little bit if I'm on that car ride with the two, you know, security agents, I really, I'm not sure that I would carry myself, um, you know, how I would do, how I would handle that. So again, I think it's just really um, good for you for even getting through it. And then also, you know, following up and uh, making that kind of the, the basis of your thing, man. I think that's just really fascinating, honestly. Well, I, I have the benefit now of, of you know, years later, uh, we're on, uh, this will be 10 years this fall. 
<clears throat> of, of framing it in a way where I come across as cool and calm and collected. And uh, that's certainly not how I was feeling at the time. Um, yeah. I, mean, I was uh, disconcerted is mildly way to say it or a diplomatic way to say it. I was not. I was, uh, I was terrified. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, I was worried for the school, yes, because I'm, I was professionally obligated to. Uh, but I was worried for myself. I was worried for my wife, who uh, was working in the same school. She was the librarian of that Canadian school. And uh, it all happened so fast. I didn't even get a chance to tell her that I was being whipped away from my office. And so, um, yeah, it, it wasn't as cool and calm as, and collected as, as I'm able to talk about it now. That's not how I felt inside. Well, I mean, just the hours that have gone into thinking about it. So, um, and I think also, um, you know, your experience um, as sort of entering the program and then having a sympathetic supervisor sort of, uh, you know, highlighting certain areas of potential academic interest for you. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty much how I ended up upon my uh, study of social presence in these online courses because within my ed tech cohort at University of Calgary, uh, the community of inquiry model was uh, right there and being sustained by uh, Garrison, Randy Garrison, the uh, one of the original, you know, progenitors or whatnot of uh, said framework. So um, I, I think you know that's. Uh, a kind of a, a common way to sort of find your 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 uh, footing, uh, your your theoretical sort of framework and footing. Um, can I ask? I guess you know what led you to uh, the interview. Mul I, I take it multiple interview, multiple mm -hmm. single interview design carried out through Zoom. Is that sort of what happened? Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh Maybe I'll also say that not only did I have, I think, the world's best doctoral supervisor, <clears throat> and uh, you know, I'm I'm immensely grateful for her guidance over the four years that, you know, from the time I entered the program until now. Um, but I also, my supervisory committee uh, consisted of um, the entire committee uh, consisted of. The one of the members was the is the acting dean, I think, still of the Faculty of Nursing in Alberta. And so she is within healthcare literature, one of the experts on moral distress. And so I had that I had her, um, I guess, guidance and encouragement of the, kind of the validity of this kind of research, taking this notion of moral distress and bringing it out. I also had, uh, to get to your question, Matt, about my design, I also had uh, Dr. Erica Goebel and my committee, oh, the, the Dean of Nursing's name is Dr. Diane Kunick, um, but I also had Dr. Erica Goebel on my committee, and Erica is, well, she uh, she's the editor of a, of a journal called Phenomenology in Practice, uh, but she's truly, I would say, one of the uh, She's world regarded, world renowned, I guess, for her understanding of phenomenology and phenomenology in practice. And I chose a phenomenological methodology and uh, slightly different from what 
uh, her expertise is, but she was certainly knowledgeable enough to give me a lot of guidance on IPA. So interpretative phenomenological analysis was the methodology I chose. And its research, its typical research design is semi-structured interviews. So that's the, my long way to get to your question. So uh, yeah, I, I managed to speak to 15 principals uh, from these Canadian accredited schools in China. They represented three provinces, BC, Alberta, and Ontario. Uh, predominantly BC, but I had representation from the other two provinces as well. And uh, I, the original plan was for me to travel to China and to sit with them and to talk through these interviews, semi-structured interviews in person. But the world slammed shut when COVID started, right when I was getting ready to do this. So uh, we switched to Zoom. I ended up speaking to each person twice. Um, usually about three or four weeks apart uh, between first and second interview. Um, and I ended up with 37 hours of transcripts, which, I mean, principals can talk, teachers can talk, you guys know this, people are happy to talk about their experiences and I'm so grateful that they did. Their insights were amazing. I ended up with 440 single spaced pages of, um, of transcript. And then, I mean, just incredible. These are very, very knowledgeable, very um, experienced school leaders, not just in China. A lot of them had been school leaders in Canada as well. So <clears throat> they really understood what it meant to, to offer a curriculum, to administer a curriculum in its full expression in a place that sometimes had strictures or conditions that wouldn't allow them to do that. Censorship is the easiest one to talk about with China. And um, I mean, it was what impelled me, but that wasn't all uh, the only source of moral distress that these principals were talking about. Uh, a lot more of that came out through their, it um, uh, came out through the interviews as well. So the semi-structured interviews, it were, we, I did it because it was part of IPA's kind of uh, design. Um, but, um, you know, the ability to be with people as they're making connections and wandering through and in some cases, maybe I was asking guiding questions and in other cases, I felt like I was <clears throat> very happily along for the ride as these people were understanding what they had been through now. And so for some of them, the first time talking it through, none of them had heard the term moral distress until I sent them the you know, the letter to participate in the study uh, because the term moral distress uh, isn't in the lexicon of K to 12 education or, or higher ed yet. It, it's, not, it's not part of the discourse yet. And I think that it should be. And, and I think it's one of the contributions that, that my research uh, will make. And it's, it's bringing a concept from a place where it's well studied and well regarded and understood and it's measured for and it's uh, it's mitigated by strategies that, that healthcare professionals put in for themselves uh, because they know it's, it's, it's truly an occupational risk. Um, but that isn't the case in, in school leadership yet or with teachers yet or in higher ed yet. And I hold that it should be so, um, yeah. 
That is so rad. Um, I've got, you know, uh, a few questions kind of bubbling up here, and I've also got the notes. But I guess just wondering, Doug, if you uh, have any uh, thoughts or, uh, you know, experiences or, or questions you might uh, care to put forward here, pal? The, um, the, the second question I had ready, you talked about more of the stress not being part of the K-12 lexicon. What about moral fluidity? Because you mentioned that in your research. And I'm wondering if you could just talk to us about that, especially in the educational context and your experiences. Yeah, so moral fluidity was, uh, uh, so the way IPA, uh, the, the way I conducted the study was I, I was able to generate 14, IPA calls them personal experiential themes which I then grouped into group experiential themes. Uh, these were the constituent pieces of, of, of each principal's sense-making process, process of making meaning of their experiences. So I, I tried to parse their experiences. Uh, I did it across, uh, I did each case individually, and then I looked to see what I could come to in group. Um, and that, that's what IPA calls for. But as I was doing that, I was asking myself a lot of questions about, uh, you know, recognizing that that's what's happening is, is step one. But then, so what? What's the what's the the, the why or the, or the how? And so I created a framework um, from this research, and I created a framework that I called moral fidelity. And moral fidelity is uh, the way I phrased it. Um, moral fidelity is um, this uh, uh, in order to to kind of assuage the the moral distress they experience. The 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 principles would orient themselves towards an obligation that they felt in that moment. So either two identified four parts of this moral fidelity framework that I made. Um, it, uh, four kind of parts, not quadrants, parts, I guess, four parts of um, their meaning making that were indicative of and faithful to kind of the central belief they held in, in a particular moment. Uh, in order to get themselves through the moral distress. So I, I, I identified, um, identi uh, I'm sorry, I identified uh, an obligation to context, and that's the feelings that they had to their adopted home uh, for China. So sometimes they would act in a way that they did, and at the front of the mind, the primacy of their moral drive or their more understanding of their obligation was to context to their adopted home. Sometimes it was to the tenants which underlie the curriculum that they deliver. And so I named that to curriculum. Um, sometimes it was to actual the physical terms of the contract, the employment contract that they had signed uh, to contract. And sometimes it was to themselves and their own personal or professional growth. Um, so I named that to self, and it killed me that I couldn't come up with uh, a word that started with the letter C because C. I had the context and curriculum and, and contract and self. So I mean, I couldn't quite make it work, but 
Um, so that, that was this framework of moral fidelity that I built based on their experiences. But then moral fluidity was this notion. Uh, I presented uh, kind of an early iteration of my thinking at a conference and somebody in the, when I was on Zoom, somebody in the Zoom room asked me um, how they're moving through that. Is that them just kind of flip-flopping or, or just accepting or acquiescing? Is it, is it kind of a, a moral relativism? And I really wanted to address that because I, that's not what came through their insights. It's not what came through my understanding of what these people were saying. What came through was that these were, again, deeply principled, PLE principled um, people leading their schools in as authentic a way as they could with deep and, and constantly evolving intercultural awareness, which is required in a job like this. And it was far too flippant uh, to, to say, well, this, they're, just, they're just kind of uh, you know, doing what they need to do. That, that they were doing what they needed to do, I think, um, not, out of, not, not by a default or in a pejorative way. They were doing this in a very sometimes active and explicit way in their own thinking, but sometimes less consciously. But I found that what the people were doing was, was shifting, was moving between these parts of this framework I created um, when they needed to. Sometimes they were even holding one or two parts simultaneously that this isn't an either or proposition. So I settled on this notion of moral fluidity and this moral fluidity allowed the principles to, it allowed them kind of uh, an intellectual and an emotional or an effective nimbleness, a capacity to uh, find within themselves that measure of moral um, consonance in their own professional identity that allowed them to do the job. Uh, when I was coming up with the name of it, and, and I, I added this in, in the, I called my dissertation The Thing. From the time I started writing it until the time it's done, I still refer to it as The Thing, capital T Thing. So. Uh, if I say the thing, that's why. So I, I did write this in the thing, and um, about uh, there's there's a, a phrase in Chinese, uh, kind of a four character idiom, um, and it's about uh, the water water dripping on the stone, and over time, the 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 soft water will 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 erode the, the hard stone. I think this is a common metaphor, not just in Chinese, but the, it's sometimes taken as a metaphor about perseverance and steadfastness, just kind of keep at something until you get the change you want. I think it also can be presented and read, and I do see it this way sometimes, as a metaphor about erosion and change, which I also thought got kind of to the, to the same notion of uh, morality, because um, sometimes these principles felt, uh, because of the morally distressing situations they were in, they sometimes felt um, floating, uh, listless, unsupported, unmoored, um, because they, they weren't able to find 
um, a place to anchor their moral positionality because uh, it just wasn't allowed in the circumstances that they were in. Uh, and so for me, this, I guess this water metaphor made sense for those number of reasons, which is, which is how I got to the term fluidity. I don't mean it in any, I never meant it and don't now. And I will defend strongly uh, to anyone who says that this is just kind of people, you know, shifting to where they need to be to do their job. It's, it's much more nuanced than that. And, and um, I think at the heart, at its heart, school leadership has this strong component of, of moral stewardship, of, of ethical leadership. And I think that moral fluidity, as I conceive it, is the way that these people are able to do what they do in the place they do it, but stay true to themselves uh, in as much measure as they have to or can in a particular moment. Man, I think uh, the people that you have sort of been in touch with, I mean, while you were sort of speaking to, because I mean, Doug and I are both from uh, technology and sort of curricular, I guess, backgrounds, you know, we all start as teachers and then we turn into what we turn into, right? Um, and I guess just in terms of sort of a, I don't know, a complimentary concept, um, I, I was thinking that what you've sort of described in terms of presenting this framework and sort of, I think that's a really awesome, you know, thing to have come out of your doctorate with, but then especially just in terms of perhaps that enables your uh, colleagues, your, your uh, you know, cohort to sort of help make sense of their own experience. Um, and to that extent, I sort of uh, see some affinity or compliment complementariness with the uh, ed tech sort of notion of uh, metacognition in as much as, you know, thinking about thinking is an empowering experience because then you have more control, you're taking more ownership over it. So by providing your colleagues an opportunity to kind of uh, express their lived experiences through these interviews and to introduce them to, you know, these uh, conceptual tools um, to sort of help them consider, you know, these aspects of their own experience in a more, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of nuanced kind of way, in a, in a way that recognizes that nuance. Um, I just think that's really, uh, that's really impressive, honestly, and uh, super, super interesting. Thank you. I I was heartened, uh, really heartened by um, uh, how people, it's not just the 15 principles I talked to who, who I, I had given a definition of moral distress who started to say, whoa, okay, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, I have had a chance over the last couple of years to present at a few conferences uh, to, I mean, to, to academics, which is great because then I, I get, uh, kind of some academic shine on, on what this is and guidance and direction and da da da. Um, but I've also had the opportunity to speak to like practicing principles. I, I've spoken to groups of, um, you know, from different school districts in BC. Uh, I spoke to the British Columbia Principals and Vice Principals Association in their webinar series and, and talked about. Um, my research with them 
And while I'm talking to people about moral distress and uh, defining it, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of ah, like there's a lot of knowing nods in the room, and um, I think that kind of naming it, recognizing that it's a, a phenomenon, is 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 a is the first hurdle, and which is why I think I mean I'm thrilled that you guys would have me on here and would listen to me go on about this because. I think this knowledge mobilization, getting this notion out to practicing principles who maybe are who aren't going to find look up or find the literature that I read or they're because they don't have the time or why would they? Uh, they're not going to probably read this 270 page thing. They're not going to. But uh, I wanted to um, to be able to, again, to bring it into the discourse. I think it's important for school leaders to have this in their discourse. I joked with one of Dr. Stelmack's other grad students who's doing her uh, doctoral work right now on wellness and how wellness is conceptualized. And um, she, she's looking at superintendents, I think, in Alberta, but um, how wellness is conceptualized in school districts. And, and I've joked with her that uh, I think moral distress needs the same kind of PR campaign that wellness has had over this last, however many, 10 years or 20 years. When I was a young teacher, we weren't talking explicitly about work-life balance and wellness in the same way um, that it is now. Of course, the terms existed. And of course, we were talking about things like that, but not using this language. But over the last 20 years, it's it's wellness and wellness and wellness in education which is great, it should be. But I also think that moral distress needs that same kind of push. I, I believe it to be an occupational risk um, with school leaders, with teachers in their classrooms, with in higher ed. Um, when I was speaking to uh, other people about my research, anyone who's kind enough to listen, uh, I'll blab on to about this. Uh, but my dad is a...
one of the one of the people that I talked to in my pilot study was a principal in China at one of these BC offshore schools, and uh, he got back to Canada and said, "No, like uh, I'll go back and I'll, I'll go back to a classroom." Um, the he he just wasn't. <laughs> um, he was compelled to move away from school leadership because of what he had experienced uh, through morally distressing situations in school leadership. That's very co not common. It's identified clearly in with nurses in nursing that um, it's a, the Canadian Medical Association publishes flyers every year for medical professionals about moral distress and warning people about its dangers and the possibility that, you know, uh, it could lead. It could push people away from their progression, uh, from their profession. It can cause a, a a depersonalization or a desensitization to uh, that very kind of moral core of of these kinds of professions. And I mean, that's the last thing we need. I think is school leaders who are just inuring themselves or hardening themselves from these kinds of moral conversations that that's the exact opposite of what we need man that is such a uh, thoughtful kind of way of bringing us towards the closing of this conversation um it's uh in the pretty pretty crazy to me that we've uh, come almost close to the hour here i really um i'll just say that you know from my experience um, and perhaps doug can relate from his time overseas in an educational role. I mean, from when I was uh, in uh, the Heritage Institute uh, classrooms uh, to when I was uh, in Qatar working at the uh, Canadian project, uh, the College of North Atlantic's project over there uh, when I was involved. Certainly just even at my level going into the classroom, um, sort of finding my legs and sort of just navigating the cultural environment uh, definitely, I had moments where, like, not only did I feel like I was hopeless at it, I felt like I was, like, a bad person <laughs> for not knowing how to sort of optimally, you know, uh, manage uh, my practice in these in these settings. Uh, and some of that was a function of being a new teacher in a lot of cases, but uh, I think a lot of what you described uh, surely will resonate, and I'm really glad that you've uh, made that uh, tie to uh, the medical literature. I think maybe we need like a, you know, Bell or Rogers campaign, uh, moral distress, let's talk or something like this, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess I'll just kind of say, really, thanks for bringing this to our show. Um, and thanks for just kind of giving us this uh, really thoughtful, nuanced uh, snapshot of what you've been up to. Um, Doug, did you have anything else you wanted to uh, ask or mention before we kind of wind things down here, bud? Just one last little question. If you have an educator that is experiencing moral distressing situations, do you have any advice? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's the that's the what next piece, right? And again, I think here we turn to... Um, it's funny because I joked about the wellness and and it being uh, we we need to kind of ride that same kind of publicity train that they do, uh, but a lot of what healthcare professionals um, talk about in terms of 
coping strategies, institutional coping strategies, and personal coping strategies aren't that different from um, from uh, this push towards work-life balance and and talking to people uh, who are who have experience in it. The first part of that, though, Doug, I think again is just the recognition. You you have to be able to to identify for yourself that what I'm feeling is is probably this moral distress. Something is rubbing, uh, doesn't sit well with me because of who I am, my own professional identity, da, da, da. Uh, ed, healthcare professionals, uh, I went to this incredible symposium, healthcare symposium at the, I think it's called the John Dossiter Center for Healthcare Ethics or something. It's at the University of Alberta. And uh, they were talking in there, they said, um, uh, if you're feeling moral distress, health care workers, nurses, uh, well, just call a medical ethicist. And well, I don't think as school leaders or as teachers, uh, we we all have ready access to a medical ethicist. Um, but I do think that like in health care, um, we're, we're usually all surrounded by people who uh, who have either gone through what we've gone through or are experiencing it. So I think if we can bring the notion of moral distress into the discourse and people can start to talk to one another about what it feels like, what it looks like, how have you navigated and made your way through it? I think the the naming of it, uh, the identification of it is, is that it's kind of the first step. Then the other things that uh, healthcare workers are saying are things like, um, yes, uh, kind of better monitoring your, your work-life balance and, and exercising more and uh, finding time, reflective time and journaling and, and these kind of things. It's not different than kind of a lot of now common wisdom about living our best lives. But I think it's the identification of, of what moral distress is, how it might manifest. Um, I think that that's that's the start. Naming is key. You know, you you uh, can't uh, really uh, call. You know, speak to a, a point of getting better from something if you don't have the language even to describe your symptoms. So that conceptual framework, this terminology, I think that's a. Uh, you know, I just like to congratulate you, Lee on uh, finishing your doctorate, uh, you know, at least the uh, dissertation part of it, um, you know, for your successful defense and for bringing uh, this really, uh, I think, important uh, work, you know, further along, uh, which is ultimately the goal of this endeavor, right? Um, and uh, I really uh, look forward to hearing uh, what you're up to beyond. Um, can I just ask though, just really, um, when do you anticipate that the thing uh, will be available in some format? Um, are you planning on publishing it and kind of holding it back, or is it going to be available through um, the university in some way? What's uh, what's what's the next step in terms of getting that into our hot little hands? Anybody who's interested. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, let me say I, I really appreciate you guys. Uh, I mean, I've watched all the episodes of your podcast before. And I'm thankful, I have, and I'm thankful that uh, there weren't any uh, tech questions. I'm glad that we stuck to the non-tech part of it for me because um, 
Uh, yes, great. Because uh, I understand about usually about 30% of what you guys talk about. But um, in terms of the thing getting out there, um, the Alberta has finalized its its formatting review now, and it's it's successfully resting in their dissertation database. It will go live in the week of my convocation in June. So in June, awesome. I'll I'll be able to send it. Uh, the link goes live and it's public. Uh, I am looking to. I'm not in academia, but, but uh, and I don't know what the future holds in that. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So. Um, I, I am looking to publish some parts of it into academic journals. Um, I'm looking, one thing uh, is about the content, about moral distress. Another thing is about the methodology, uh, bringing IPA into education where it doesn't usually exist as a methodology either. So I'm gonna focus on the methodological publications first uh, in journals, but I do think that this thing was the thing was never written as a as a practical how to guide for school leaders, um, but I think I would like to make something of it that um, you know I don't know if it's going to be a pamphlet or a workshop or something that uh, can come out of it for for school leaders because uh, they're they're maybe not going to access the academic side of it which is fine. And these are busy people doing important work that they should be focusing on. But um, yeah, I, I'm going to try to get it out there in a number of ways. And I, I think it's important to do so. Awesome. Well, that uh, is really something I think uh, we're all looking forward to. Come June, we'll be able to uh, post that link live in just a few months. Um, and I guess I just really like to say thanks a lot for being here. Uh, Doug, is there anything else you wanted to add, pal, before we sign off? Yes, Dr. Smith, thank you very much. I don't know how fresh it is, so I know the the more fresh it is, the more you like to hear doctor. That's right. It's very fresh, so thank you. Yeah, good. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, um, from uh, all three of us to uh, whoever out there is listening, uh, we appreciate you very much, uh, and we're going to have some uh, substantive uh, WordPress notes once we get a few more resources in the Google Docs. So uh, we're uh, looking forward to uh, sharing it with you via Spotify, Google, LinkedIn, and uh, other ways across uh, the whole wide internet. So uh, thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Smith. Uh, thanks a lot, Dr. Doug. Uh, take care, everybody, and uh, bye for now. Bye-bye.